at the prophet Haggai's message to the people of God. And we're calling it Building God's House. And uh, we're learning through the Word and through experience that building God's house isn't easy. Uh, There are tremendous obstacles along the way, uh, and there's a mighty and powerful enemy who would oppose God's people in building God's house at every step. Uh, It's been 21 days of building in the story so far, and uh, this day was a bittersweet day at best. 21 days of building God's house, pouring their heart and soul into making it happen, and then there was a great celebration because the foundation had been laid. It's the 21st day of the seventh month. And so this celebration was like no other. There was uh, blasting of trumpets. There was clashing of cymbals. uh, There was singing and shouting out God's praise. But this day was bittersweet at best. Uh, Ezra tells us the story in Ezra chapter 3 verse 2. He says this about that day. Many of the old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people couldn't distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. And so God, in his kindness, raises up the prophet Haggai to bring a message of encouragement to his discouraged and downhearted people. Have a look at chapter 2 of Haggai, uh, verse 3, page 768. If you haven't got it in front of you, um, why don't you uh, grab it and take a look with me? Haggai says in verse 3, Who's left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? The people poured their heart and souls into building God's house. They had such high hopes for all of the hard work that they put into laying the foundation of God's house, but their hopes were dashed. They were crushed. They were discouraged. They were disheartened. If you were here last week, the message that Haggai brought was to a people who were discouraged. Uh, sorry, to a people who were comfortable and complacent. Remember God says to him, uh, you live in your panelled houses while my house lies in ruins. And so he brings a message of challenge to his people. But today God brings a message of encouragement, strength and hope to a people who are discouraged and downhearted at the progress of their work in building God's house. And so I hope as we go through the passage, uh, we'll see two things. Firstly, we'll look at the cause for discouragement in verses 1 to 3. And secondly, the cure for discouragement in verses 4 to 9. So firstly, let's look at the cause for their discouragement. Um, The date Haggai gave this second message was very important. It says the 21st day of the seventh month. And the reason this is so important is because this is the last day of one of the most important festivals in Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles. And this day in particular was the very day on which King Solomon dedicated his great temple over 430 years ago. Think about Solomon's temple. The the thing, if you know about Solomon's temple, is that it was a magnificent masterpiece of architecture and precious stones and silver and gold. And Haggai's 
generation, the people who had seen that house, were looking at the new one going, this is nothing by comparison. They were depressed when they looked back on the glory days. Uh, Remember that Solomon ruled over the kingdom at its height, at its peak, at its most glory. The, um, the, The borders of the land had never been bigger and they never would be again. The nations would come to Israel and stand in awe at the wonder of the kingdom. They would even sit at King Solomon's feet to try and get his wisdom and they would marvel at the beauty of this temple. But 430 years later, now in Haggai's day, Israel was occupied territory. They were a vassal state of the Persian Empire. There was a drought. They were facing economic hardship. And when they looked at this temple foundation compared to the glorious temple of what Solomon had built, they were discouraged and depressed. But Haggai tries to tell them that they're making a mistake. They're making the mistake that we often make today, and that's the mistake of putting style over substance, of looking on outward appearance and exteriors rather than seeing with the eyes of faith to the reality, the spiritual reality. Uh, there's a fantasy writer called um, George MacDonald. Uh, he inspired um, J.R. Tolkien, actually, and he wrote, uh, my daughter's reading The Princess and, sorry, The Princess and the Goblin, uh, but he wrote another fantasy novel called The Princess and Curdie, and it's a story of this little minor boy called Curdie who meets an ancient fairy queen who sends him on a dangerous quest. And because it's dangerous, she gives him a special power. And she has him put his hands in this fire of rose petals and it burns him. It's terribly painful. But when he pulls his hands out, he discovers that when he takes someone's hand, he can discern from the outward appearance and to see the reality of a person's heart. So at one point, uh, there's this horrible, ugly monster named Lena. But when he takes her hand, he can detect the hand of an innocent young girl. At another point, there's this uh, regal, impressive-looking king, and he grabs his hand, but, uh, and, and, and another time he, he grabs the hand of a beautiful woman. But when he takes the hand, he can actually feel the claw of a vulture. In other words, his special power was to look beyond outward appearance to see into the heart. And that's what God wants his people to do. As they look at this unimpressive foundation, they want... God wants his people to look beyond the outward appearance to see by the Spirit to the heart. This passage, I think, raises the question for us as we build God's house, um, whether it's um, a small group, a music ministry, a a youth ministry, whatever it is, uh, how do we measure success? How do we measure success as we go about building God's house. The danger is that often we can take a worldly measure and measure things the way the world measure things. So uh, the, the, the trap for the churches is, is the kind of famous three, uh, buildings, budget, and bums on seats. Did you get that? that? That's often the way we measure success in the church, is the buildings, uh, the size of the buildings, the size of the budget, and the number of bums on seats. Uh, and, and the question is, is that the right measure for, for success? 
Uh, the Apostle Paul tells his measure of success to a lot of churches. He, he writes to them and tells them why he's so encouraged, why he's so joyful. And it's another three things, entirely different to those three things. Do you, do you know the three things he often uh, celebrates and rejoices over in his, his churches? Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And I know myself I'm convicted by saying that because we often use the wrong measures for success. I know one sure way for me to, uh, if I want to be discouraged and depressed, uh, is to go and look at other churches' websites uh, and just see how many people they have on staff and how amazing their worship services look and to see all of the amazing ministries that they're doing. Well, thankfully for me, God doesn't measure success by the appearance of our website. Nothing against our website. It's fine. It looks, it looks great. Uh, but, but how does God measure success? The danger is, how does he measure preachers and pastors? Uh, how does he measure their success? So often we put style over substance, and that's a danger because then we miss out on the substance because we're so focused on style. God says to his people, no, I don't want you to be like that. This is the cause of their discouragement because they're looking at style and not substance. And so what about the cure for discouragement? Have a look at God's cure for their discouragement as they look on this seemingly pathetic foundation of the temple. Verse 4, he says three times, take courage, take courage, take courage. What a great message for us, for those of us who are concerned about our young people, take courage, take courage, take courage. Why? Look at verse 4. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. God says, I am with you. It's, it's actually a verbless clause. In other words, it could be translated, I have been, I am, and I will be with you. And then he says it again in verse 5, my spirit abides among you. No matter how outwardly ugly the foundation of the temple looks, the The key thing is that my spirit abides among you. And so it is when you look at the living stones that we are in the saints. However we look outwardly, the key thing to see is that my spirit abides among you. I am with you. The literal in Hebrew is my spirit is standing in your midst. But look at who it is who's standing in their midst. I wonder if you noticed uh, verse 4 and throughout the message of Haggai, the title that keeps coming up for the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 6, the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, who is he? He's the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew term is El Shaddai, the God of angel armies. This is putting in bold God's power and authority and sovereignty. He's the commander-in-chief of all the angel armies of heaven and in earth. And he can put to bear his strength and power and might on behalf of his people. And he says, that is who it is who is standing in your midst. So, take courage. And so based on the fact of his presence in their midst and his spirit among them, God commands his people, even as he commands us, three things on the basis of his presence in our midst. The first is take courage, verse 4. Then have a look at the end of verse 4. He says, work. Get to work. And then again, verse 5, the third command, do not fear. Because, of course, 
Fear can be absolutely paralyzing, can't it, so that you never get to work. Any, anyone relate to that? Can I just get a show of hands? Being paralyzed for, by fear so that you don't get to work? Okay, it's only three of you. I'm sorry, I must be in a, a, a weak minority in this church. Fear can be absolutely paralyzing so that we don't get to work. And God says, no, do not be afraid. Take courage and get to work, for I am with you. It is not for you to say the means by which I will bring about my power, glory, and blessing. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, it says, my power is made perfect in weakness. So get to work. Not by strength, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the word. Take courage. Do not fear. Get to work. We should try not to be like uh, the story of of this farmer working out on the wheat belt. But one day he was standing out on the steps of his rundown shack and a stranger came by for a drink but also for a, a bit of a chat. And the stranger said to the farmer, how's your cotton coming along? And, and the farmer said, well, uh, I haven't got any. And he said, well, what do you mean you haven't got any? He's like, well, no, I'm, I'm too afraid of boll weevils, so I didn't plant any. And he goes, well, well okay, well... How's your corn going? And he said, no, I didn't plan any. I was too afraid it wasn't going to rain. He keeps persevering. Well, what about your potatoes? No, I haven't got any. I was scared of potato bugs. So he says, well, well, did you actually plant anything? No, nothing. I just decided to play it safe. That's no way to go about building God's house, being paralyzed with fear, overcome so that you don't get to work. And that applies to the essay that's due this week. It applies to your challenge at work. It applies to your uh, family, uh, to your siblings. It applies to your kids. Do not be afraid. Take courage. Get to work. I find this so encouraging, mostly when I have to preach and I have no idea what I'm going to say. Kieran, do not be afraid. Take courage and get to work. My power is made perfect in weakness. Don't put style over substance. The first cure that God gives for discouragement is to say, I'm the God of angel armies and I'm standing in your midst. One of my favorite songs when I'm discouraged that I keep listening to is a song by Chris Tomlin. I know who goes before me. I know who stands beside. The God of angel armies is always by my side. Look it up. God of angel armies by Chris Tomlin. Take courage. The God of angel armies is standing in your midst. But also God says, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Though the ground underneath you is cursed and stained, your planting and reaping are never the same, but your labor is not in vain. I hope you hear that. No matter what your work is, do it as to the Lord and it will not be in vain. The third cure for discouragement, uh, have a look at verses 6 to nine. You see, part of what was going on is that the people were feeling discouraged is because they thought that the best was behind them. They were looking back to the glory days of Solomon's temple and Haggai says, no, the best is not behind you. The best is yet to come. Take courage. The best is yet to come. Have a look at what he says in verse 7. I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all the nations shall come and I will fill this house with splendor. Most translations say, I'll fill this house with glory. Uh, And 
the, when it says the treasure of all the nations will come, a Bible translation, as I looked at it, they're kind of 50-50 split between saying the treasure of all the nations will come and the desire of all the nations will come. Uh, but in verse 8, God says, if you look, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, as if to say, uh, you know, there was a lot of precious gold and silver and gems in, the Solomon's, in Solomon's temple, but... I don't need your silver. I don't need your gold. I have something far more beautiful, far more precious, and far more glorious that I'm going to put in the temple. I'm going to put the desire of all the nations in the temple. Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. The prophet Malachi talks about it in chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what the prophet Malachi says. This is the last book of the Old Testament. Again, looking forward to the best that's yet to come. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord of hosts. The desire of the nations will come to this temple as shabby and as outwardly pathetic that it looks. This is the temple that the glory, far surpassing the glory of Solomon's temple, the glory of God the Son will come to this temple that they're building. So be not discouraged. The best is yet to come. John says in John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt uh, it, the Greek is tabernacle, talking about the temple. Tabernacled amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. And so Jesus came to this temple, but it's really interesting. And, and I'm, this is kind of the last bit coming into land. I know it's hot. See so if you can stay with me. That, um, that, that in John 7, we hear about the Feast of Tabernacles again, this festival that they were celebrating in Haggai where they were depressed about the outward appearance of the temple. In John 7, uh, Jesus comes to the temple, in chapter, and it's the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And for the last six chapters, they've been so impressed and so amazed that, if you like, Jesus is razzle-dazzle and the amazing miracles that he's done. And so in John 7, chapter 2... Jesus finds his disciples still putting style over substance and still looking at outward appearance. Here's how the story goes. When the Feast of Tabernacles came, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee, think backwater town, Nowheresville. Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. You see, they're making the same mistake that the people in Haggai were making of putting style over substance. Friends, this is the one who is so much greater than Solomon's temple with all of its beauty and gold. Jesus the temple. The one who's so much more glorious and beautiful than Solomon's temple. And they look at him and they say, Jesus, where's the silver? Where's the gold? Where's the flashy website? Where's the social media campaign? Where's the big placards? Where's the razzle-dazzle? Where's the silver? Where's the gold? Do you see? They're still putting style over substance. And Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come. What's his time? He will have a moment of glory. He will have his five seconds of fame. He will have his hour of power. He says, my time has not yet come. What time is he talking about? He's talking about the time when the glory of God shines through most magnificently, most gloriously, most wonderfully. What's he talking about? The cross. 
That's God's moment of glory. Lord Jesus, the beautiful, beautiful beyond bearing. Philippians 2 says he was co-equal with God and yet he made himself nothing and took on the likeness of a servant and became humbled himself to a servant even to the point of death. Isaiah 53 says of this beautiful Jesus, the glory of God. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. See, Jesus is the one who is beautiful beyond bearing, and yet he was beaten beyond recognition for us and for our sins. Friends, this is the glory of God, that the beautiful one would take on our ugliness, take on our sin, take on our shame, and take it all and nail it to the cross so that he could plant in us, now that we're cleansed through the blood of Christ, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit so that the Apostle Paul can say, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure of the Spirit of Christ standing in our midst. And, and the best is yet to come. The Apostle Paul says on the day that Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly bodies to be made like his glorious body. The best is yet to come. So take courage. The best is not behind us. The best is yet to come. It won't be easy. It won't be easy. But God is with us and the best is yet to come. I like the way Annie Johnson puts it in a song called What God Has Promised. God has not promised skies always blue, flower strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God has not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He has not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labour, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. So the Apostle Paul says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. Amen? Amen. Please stand and sing.